our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to be with all of you this morning in worship. I'm going to keep up the habit here, moving this out of the way. Why? So I don't trip. That's as simple as it is, right? Chris asked last week, why do you move that? Well, I'm going to do it too. I don't know why Scott moves that, but I'm going to do it. It's because I pace, and I, you know, I, can't, I don't want to trip. Um, let's take some time. We've been looking at the Beatitudes. Let's take some time and just pray as we enter into God's Word together and to study it together, okay? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are dependent upon you. We need you. We need your grace and your peace. We need uh, the light of your presence to know the life that you've given us, to know the good news of the gospel, and to rejoice in it. Be with us now as we study your word. Show us what we need to know. Minister to us in the way that we uh, need to be ministered to. You know us through and through, Father. We depend on you and give ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been, uh, this is the final in our series, summer series on the Beatitudes. And what we've been looking at is what should a Christian long to be like? What should a Christian long to be like? What, uh, what is it that we should set our hearts on becoming? What kind of person should you be if you're a Christian? And so what the Beatitudes do is look at eight attitudes that we're to have. They're heart habits. They're heart habits that mark the core of our very being. They're attitudes, not that just we're to have, but attitudes that we're to be. That's why they're called the Beatitudes, okay? Attitudes that we're to be. They deal with being. And the power of the gospel is present in what we've been studying. Why? The power of the gospel has been present in what we've been studying because Jesus himself, God in flesh, came to live out all of these attributes for us, to live all of them out. Jesus is not just our role model, although he's not less than that. He came as that, but he came to be more than that. He himself completed the course in our place. He's our representative. And so these eight attitudes are on display in the person of Jesus, our Savior. Uh, They're lived out on our behalf. And by grace, all of these attitudes... All of these attitudes um, and attributes are attributed to you now if you're a Christian because you're in Christ and you're in his record. You're in what he's done. And all of these attributes will be more and more evidenced in your heart by the Holy Spirit as you grow and progress in your faith. 
So don't look at these. We've been saying each week, don't look at these. Don't be tempted to look at these as a checklist that you just mark off and keep and feel like you have some spiritual accomplishment. That's starting with you at the beginning. Starting with Jesus at the beginning looks at his accomplishment on your behalf and says, I'm in him, and I'm free because of that. Our, liberty, our name is liberty, freedom. There's a word meant freedom of the slaves in the Roman Empire. And it refers to the freedom that we have in resting on his record and his record alone as we begin. So that's what we're doing. And this is the last of the, uh, the Beatitudes that we're looking at. And what we're going to look at today is your ownership. Your ownership in the kingdom of heaven. And how it's shown through your willingness to be persecuted. Your ownership in the kingdom of heaven and how it's shown in your willingness to be persecuted. Now, in what ways does your willingness show your ownership? In what ways does your willingness show your ownership? It shows what you value. It shows what's true about your faith. And it shows Jesus to everyone else around you. It shows what you value. It shows what's true about your faith. And it shows Jesus to everyone else around you. So let's first, it shows what you value. It shows your Savior. Verse 10 says, for righteousness' sake. And Jesus unpacks that for us in verse 11. He says, on my account, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you're persecuted on my account. Okay, it shows what you value, your Savior. As we're faithful under persecution, it's made clear whether we're serving God, not for anything we want from him, or simply out of love and gratitude for what he's done for us. It shows why we're serving, serving God when we're under persecution. Jesus is not endorsing persecution for persecution's sake here. He doesn't say, go beat your head against the wall and be happy about it. He says, when you're persecuted for my sake, for righteousness' sake, on account of me, that's when you're blessed. So what does it mean to cling to him? What does it mean that he's endorsing persecution on his account, which is for righteousness' sake? The fact that he is our righteousness. It's on account of him that we would endure persecution. What does that mean? To cling to him as our righteousness, even in the face of persecution for his sake on his account. It's as simple as beginning with us, as we, start, as we stated at the beginning. Do we begin our faith? Do we begin our spiritual journey? Do we begin the reasons why we would approach God? Why we would pray? Why we would love someone? Why we would love someone and intentionally try to love someone who is persecuting us? And uttering all kinds of evil falsely on our account. False accusation. Injustice. We hate injustice done in our way. And here we're told that we're to put up with it. That we're to endure it. What's going on? If we begin with us and do things on our account, if we're living, trying to live out of faith, out of the gospel, on our account, what it brings to us, we're going to fall away when persecution comes. But if we're basing it on who Jesus is in our place, if that's our starting point, if it's Jesus first, then we can endure anything that comes. Look, uh, I was reading uh, one commentator on this passage, Ian Duguid, He's, and he wrote this illustration about this. He says, when you marry someone, you promise that you will love your spouse for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. He goes on to write, but as you're making that commitment on your wedding day, those are simply fine words. 
the promise is a good one and you believe that you mean it, but its reality has not yet been put to the test. On your honeymoon, at least in most cases, there's still only fine words. As long as everything remains for better, for richer, in health, the, rea- the reality of your words has not yet really been tried. But when you discover her annoying habits and she discovers yours, when you discover that you're living with a fallen human being, not an angel in disguise, then you start to put a little reality into those words. Still, it's only a little reality. It's not until it is substantially for worse, for poorer, or in serious ongoing sickness that you really expose for all to see whether your words were simply words or if there is a heart reality underneath them. When he loses his job or his ability to work and plunges into deep despair, will you still love him then? When she turns out to have a wicked temper and a cutting tongue, will you still love her then? When he develops Alzheimer's disease and can't even remember your name, when she is confined to a wheelchair and you have to change her bedpan, then and only then is the full reality, or otherwise, of your commitment to your spouse revealed. Did you marry this person so that she could meet your needs or so that you could meet hers? It's powerful. Why do you believe what you believe? Who's it for? Is it for your sake or is it for Jesus' sake? Examine what you believe about Jesus. Persecution shows us if we value our Savior for who he is in and of himself, not just for what he needs, not just for the needs that he meets in us, that we'll stand. So what does it mean? What does God require you? Examine what you value about Jesus. What do you value about Jesus? What is it that you consider special about him? Do you value him so much that you, when the going gets tough, you serve him still because you love him? Or is your value of Jesus what he brings to you rather than who he is? Where does he require this of you? Anywhere in life that you might be persecuted, reviled, where someone might utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. Why must you do what he's required? Because he says, he teaches here, blessed are those who persecuted. Verse 10, for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, that means on my account. Blessed are those who persecuted. Value the one who is willing to be persecuted on your account. So, not only does your willingness to be persecuted show who you value, but also it shows what you value. value. It shows that you value your citizenship. Look at verse 10 there. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, for your reward is great in heaven. Eternal life in God's presence. Eternal life in God's presence is the one thing that we must have at all costs. Did you know that? It's the one thing that we must have at all costs. You endure for what you value. You remember the biblical story? There's a guy and he falls in love with a girl. And the father of the girl says, okay, you can marry this girl, but you have to work seven years for my company here to, in order to marry her. So he says, okay. And he does it. And the seven years goes by in the blink of an eye because he loves the girl so much. And on the wedding night, the father slips in another daughter uh, without him knowing, and he has to marry the other daughter. 
And he says, wait a minute, what did you do to me? And he says, well, you know, this other daughter, she wouldn't have gotten married. She needs to get married. But I'll give you the, I'll give you the daughter that you really wanted if you work for me for another, another number of years. And so he does, and the time passes. He endured for what his heart was set on, right? Our attitude should constantly, constantly reference or be oriented to the fact that we are citizens of God's kingdom and that our citizenship is of the deepest value to us. Do you value God's kingdom? Do you value being a member of it? Uh, Elder J. Barbieri, who's on sabbatical, one of the, side note, one of the things we realized uh, when I came in last year is that our elders have been working for like 10 years straight. And it's usual, it's customary for elders to have three years on and a year off, or deacons to have three years on, a year off. You can do it in different ways, but that's a pretty standard one. And so Jay is taking a, a sabbatical. Glenn took one last year from eldering. He's back on. Jay's rotating off this year to take one. Debbie is too from the diaconate. But Jay told me a story of a, a kind of, he thinks in pictures. If you ever hear Jay Barbieri talk, he thinks in pictures. He thinks in illustration. And one of the illustrations he talked to me about was the fact that there's this idea that he had, this picture that he had of a village that's impoverished and it's dirty and it's slimy and everyone's poor and they're out to get each other and they're rummaging around in the dirt and they're uh, backstabbing each other and they're doing all kinds of nasty things. And you really have no sense of value being in that village. And on the hill above the village is this enormous castle. And there things are peaceful and tranquil. And the family of the king lives there. And they have feasts. And there's welcome. And there's embrace. And he talks about how, in the way that he thinks about this image, that the king comes to him in his squalor. And he picks him up. He says, why are you here? I've made you a son. Come and eat with me. Come and spend time with me. And so he brings him up into the the kingdom, into the castle. He sets him before the finest food. He dresses him in the finest robes. And he eats. And he doesn't understand it. And he trembles. And the king gives him a room that's magnificent. He says, you always have a place with me. You're part of my family now. And he resists it. And he goes back to the squalor. He takes off his nice clothes. And he goes back and he lives down among the town and, and forgets. And the king comes out to him again and says, Will you come in and be who you're meant to be, who I've made you to be? Will you live with me? What are you doing here? I don't deserve to be here. I've taken care of what you deserve. I've made it right. What you deserve is declared now by me. You have my name on you. Will you be in my family? And he brings him back, and it starts to dawn on him. And he wants to go now to the town and not only enjoy his own place in the family, but he wants to go and say, hey, you have a place in the family too. Would you come? Would you join me? It makes you who you are. It takes you out of this squalor. It gives you peace and joy and comfort and rest. Is your citizenship the thing that you long for the deepest. Your relationship with God now is your father through what Jesus has done. He makes you an heir of the kingdom. For theirs is the kingdom of God, he says. So he requires that you deeply value the fact that you have ownership in the kingdom of heaven and the reward you have there in God's presence 
is enormous. Paul says it's more than we can ask or imagine. You need this in your life everywhere. If you are purer than everyone else at work and don't join in the dirty jokes and the mockery of God, people are going to make fun of you. If you are meeker than those around you, not insisting on your own rights, people will try to take advantage of you. When you mourn over sin, people will make fun of you and tell you not to be so old-fashioned. And it's in those moments that you're not afraid to show that you are a citizen of your Heavenly Father's kingdom and you have a place there. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at the one who lost his citizenship for you on the cross. Look at the one. How can you do this? Look at the one who lost his citizenship on the cross so that you could be given entrance into God's kingdom with the full rights of a citizen. So, not only does your willingness to be persecuted show who you value and what you value, but also it shows what's true about your faith, your authenticity. Verse 10 and 11, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you. There's blessing through it. There's blessing through it. It shows your authenticity. Persecution exposes the true nature of your faith. Did you know that? Persecution exposes the true nature of your faith. Um, And it's possible to be a counterfeit Christian. You've got to know that as well. First Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, links persecution and various trials, grieving and various trials of various kinds, suffering. He links them together, and he says, In this you rejoice, for now, for, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look, just as genuine gold is able to withstand fire, do you know this? You heat up the gold, the impurities burn out. Peter's saying the same kind of thing happens under suffering of your faith. Same kind of thing. The dross is burned away, and true faith is able to withstand persecution. Imitation faith is destroyed by that kind of pressure. Um... Jesus talks a little bit later about what counterfeit faith is. He, he illustrates it. He says in the parable of the sower, he said there's a sower who goes out to sow seeds, you know, so the plants grow up. And he says that there's a seed that fell in the rocky places, but that's the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. How do you counterfeit being a Christian? Christianity, remember, these are B attitudes. They're heart attitudes. They're the center of who you are. They flow out of who Jesus is making you through his Holy Spirit when he makes you new, when he gives you new life. They're who you are. They're your identity. They're not what you do, although they reflect in what you do. Look at the difference. Your giftedness is what you do. Many of you are gifted at different things. You do different things very well. But you can do things really well and have awful character. Now, to some extent, that's appropriate. When I'm in an airplane, as I was this weekend, and you hit turbulence, I'm not so sure that I care much about the pilot's character. I care that he can fly the plane. So giftedness is important, and don't hear me say that that's not true. 
God's given you giftedness to use it mightily. But what I'm saying is that it's possible to use your giftedness and live out of that as though that's what makes you who you are rather than living out of beginning with Jesus. Remember, beginning with yourself or beginning with Jesus. Beginning with yourself or beginning with Jesus. It always comes back to that. And when you live out of your giftedness and what you can do, and that gives you a sense of groundedness and rootedness, it'll be taken away when persecution comes. But when you live out of who Jesus is making you and what he's done for you, your true character is purified. It's refined. It shows. And you can stand under the pressure. Uh, I worked with Tim Keller for many years. He's a, a pastor. For those of you who don't know, he's a pastor in New York City. It's, um, in the final, sort of the final leg of his career, and he's writing a lot right now. Um, but one of the stories that he told was um, he knew some old pastors that were mentor of his, mentors of his, and they were getting ready to examine some real young pastors, candidates to be pastors who were coming through and being tested. And the, the candidates were bright and sharp and, and theologically right, and they were able to answer all the questions directly, and they were even able to sort of apply the gospel and think through it in different ways, and they, they showed real promise. And one of the oldest pastors who was still there sat next to him and said, you know, I just, I don't know. I don't know if this is the time. Why? They're checking off all of these gifted credentials. And the old pastor said, because they haven't suffered. It shows. And that doesn't test their faith the way that giftedness shows that they're capable. It doesn't, it doesn't test, their giftedness doesn't test their faith the way that suffering will. And I'm concerned for them. I'm concerned for their well-being, and I'm concerned for them taking on the pressures of overseeing the people of God with all of the weight that that carries from every direction. I want us to consider whether or not they've been tested, whether or not their faith has been shown and proven to be being refined by the king. Would you consider that? When you suffer in faith, it produces a genuineness of faith that is tangible. I was, uh, I was visiting a church very much like Liberty Fairmount, and um, I have a lot, of, a lot of experience, just decades of experience in small group ministry. And so this church is like us, but they, didn't have, they have small groups. And there was a, a couple uh, that I knew when I was doing small groups in New York. And they're there, and they're trying to get some things set up. So they said, would you come and talk to us about what pastoral care looks like in small groups? So I was doing that this weekend, and um, it was nice to meet them. I, I, made a, I made the reference to them that I like to cook. And uh, cooking, in cooking, in the world of cooking, when you have a restaurant and you're preparing food, there's sometimes you, like, just in the daily grind of life, you get week-to-week, uh, month-to-month, to month, year-to-year, you get kind of you lose a certain perspective on what you're doing. And so there's a, there's a famous little practice called a stage, right? And that's where a chef goes from his restaurant out for about a week or two or maybe longer and just works in another restaurant to get a, a to sort of reset, to get perspective again. And uh, what this was like for me was that 
It was like going to talk with another church. Brothers and sisters share, we're from the same denomination. We share a lot in common about what we want in the gospel to grow in our depth for love for God, grow in our depth for love for one another, grow in our depth for love for the city. And I made a new friend there. And the friend is young, but he shows the evidence of having suffered in faithfulness. And you could recognize it. And it was tangible. And I've done some suffering in my own life through faith that shows up sometimes in tangible ways. And he lost his wife to cancer. And what's interesting is that in his suffering, people don't know how to relate to him. Don't know whether they should bring it up. Don't know whether they should talk to him. We talked about how that was a lot like when you have a cultural majority and a cultural minority and there are problems between the two. The cultural majority, bringing it up in conversation with a cultural minority, is always difficult. But the best thing to do, my friends who, who have experienced suffering and persecution as a cultural minority, is just talk about it. Just bring it up. Go ahead. Put it out there on the table. We're not going to get anywhere if we don't actually say it, right? But people didn't know how to say it to him. And so I recognized it. I recognized the marks and suffering of him. He recognized the marks and suffering of me, and we were able to relate. We were able to talk about it. There's a, uh, a, something that is demonstrated in when you suffer, when you are under the weight of heaviness, and you're working through it in the gospel that demonstrates. And you know what was interesting is that throughout my talking and training of this group of people this weekend, when he would talk about Jesus as his own, or he would remind me through words that Jesus is my own, my heart sung at the gospel. And his did too. And it's palpable. It's different. It's different than the world does. It doesn't lessen the power of suffering, but it changes the way we relate to it. Persecution exposes the true nature of your faith. Authentic faith is found to be to the praise and glory of God. It's at the very foundation of who you are, the genuineness of your faith. Because the genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold is why you should do this, why you should endure persecution for his sake. See the one. How are you going to do this? You need to see the one. Although his faith was pure and genuine, he was treated as counterfeit on the cross so that your faith could be refined and made precious. So, not only does your willingness to be persecuted show authenticity of your faith, but it shows what is true about your faith, your witness. Verse 12 says, rejoice and be glad. Jesus doesn't want us to be depressed about persecution if we're Christians. He wants us to rejoice over it. He wants us to rejoice over it. Why? Sometimes our attitude under persecution speaks to our persecutors and the watching world far more loudly than any of our words could. And when they see it, they can't explain it. And they're brought face to face with no other option than the living God is there in person. I read uh, an article by a journalist who was in a war-torn another part of the world. And Christians were very persecuted. And there was he witnessed a militia who descended upon a village and, and gunned them down. And they took one of the women from the village. And the woman was a Christian. 
and they raped her. And she began singing hymns and praying for them as they did that. And it made them uncomfortable. And they began to beat her. And as they beat her, she continued singing hymns and praying for them. And every one of them fell silent from their rage and from their hatred. And they didn't know what else to do. So they killed her. Because they couldn't stand bearing such purity in the face of what they thought was their own power. Friends, rejoice and be glad because it witnesses to the mighty one. Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted for his sake because those moments demonstrate the reality underneath your words to those who are persecuting you, bearing witness to his grace and greatness even in the midst of terror. Show that which can never be taken from you when you are persecuted. Rejoice and be glad so that the one who became a man of sorrows on the cross for you is pure in your sight, is refining your faith so that you can rejoice and be glad that he's done that in the face of all opposition for you. So not only does your willingness to be persecuted show what you value and who you value, and what is true about your faith. But finally, it shows Jesus. What does he value? What does he value? When we come to things like this in the Scripture, when we come to the Beatitudes, and we're tempted to think, okay, I want to be, be a faithful person. I want to put this on. I want to live out of these. I want to make a difference in my life spiritually. I want to I count. I want to see a difference in how I how I live out of the gospel. How do you do that? You don't put yourself first. You put Jesus first. You see him saving you. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake to save you. You see what he values. He values you. He values you enough to die for you. You see, your, you see that he values your citizenship. He was made an enemy of the kingdom on the cross so that you could be made a citizen. You look at what's true about his faith, that he bore witness, and that he was a man of sorrow so that you could rejoice and be glad in his joy. You rejoice in his authenticity. His faith never wavered so that your faith could be refined and grow. Now, we're looking at these commands, and one of the things you should feel as you look at the intensity of them, you should, you should see that there's no way that you can do these things. You should see and know that you failed already in your life at these things. You can't uphold them. You can't accomplish them. You're not going to be able to do it. And when you fail, what recourse that you have? Friends, I would encourage you, don't start with you. Start with him. Listen to this famous passage from the letter from John Newton in one of his pastoral letters. He says, Blessed be God, though we must feel hourly cause for shame and humiliation for what we are in ourselves. We have cause to rejoice continually in Christ Jesus, who is as he is revealed unto us under the various names, characters, relations, and offices which he bears in the Scripture. 
holds out to our faith a balm for every wound, a cordial for every discouragement, and a sufficient answer to every objection which sin or Satan can suggest against our peace. If we are guilty, he is our righteousness. If we are sick, he is our infallible physician. If we are weak, helpless, and defenseless, he is the compassionate and faithful shepherd who has taken charge of us and will not suffer anything to disappoint our hopes or separate us from his love. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust and has engaged to guide us by his counsel, support us by his power, and at length to receive us to his glory that we may be with him forever. Friends, you have a mighty one who stood in your place and so that even your relationship to living life and doing good things changes. When you begin with Jesus, you're free. When you begin with yourself, you're bound. Would you be free? Would you be free this week as you go out and live life together, as you finish up the summer? Will you begin with Jesus in your place as you do everything in life? By his grace, let's do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for the fact that in Jesus we have invitation into your family. We are now members and citizens of your kingdom, your household, that we have your presence to share, and that is our deepest longing, and that for it we would endure anything, that there is nothing under heaven and earth which can take your love for us. There's nothing which can challenge your victory on our behalf. Indeed, Jesus, you said even the gates of hell cannot prevail against what you've wrought on our behalf. Thank you for being our victor. Thank you for standing in our place. We ask that those hopes would be the enduring hopes of our heart as we face the difficulties of life in your name together. We ask it in Jesus' name.